This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to this Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. For the first half of the week, there was no inkling that Queen Elizabeth was about to die. But that feeling began to change on Wednesday when Her Majesty canceled her involvement in a virtual meeting of the Privy Council. Then on Thursday morning, we learned she was under medical supervision with doctors concerned for her health. Just after 1.30 p.m. our time on Thursday, it was announced by the BBC that the Queen had died. We will continue to honor Queen Elizabeth II and her memory on Fight Back and during Zoomer Radio News during this period of mourning. Labor Day has been a holiday in Canada since 1894. It originated in the first workers' rallies of the Victorian era, when workers would mark the day with various activities, including parades, speeches, games, amateur competitions, and picnics. The holiday then promoted working-class solidarity and belonging during a time of rapid industrialization. Since World War II, fewer and fewer people have participated in Labor Day activities, although union rallies are still held on the day. Many Canadians now devote the Labor Day holiday to leisure activity and family time ahead of back to school. Joining me on this past Labor Day Monday to reflect on the history of the holiday, Fight Back's Zoomer Squad, Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine, David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media, and Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating and Chief Policy Officer at CARP. Well, certainly the times uh, have changed, and I think our CARP members uh, who are older will remember a much more labor-focused weekend than uh, we see now. And certainly Labor Day has turned into get ready for back to school and back to work. Uh, workday, almost uh, to the point that uh, we might want to suggest that uh, people organizing these events change the day to another time of the uh, year since uh, people are distracted on this weekend, and and maybe it's not to be too surprised that they're not uh, thinking of the real uh, background. And with all the talk these days about our labor needs, our labor shortages, the needs for better uh, training uh, it probably would be helpful if we came back to more focus on the real purpose of Labor Day. Interesting perspective. David, what about you? Well, I agree with Bill, but I think it's a long time. I mean, when I was, I guess, growing up, I'm dating myself, it was very heavily associated with the union movement, and labor often was used as a synonym for union Mm -hmm. members, and we've seen a steady erosion of union participation in uh, the so-called labor movement to the point now where the majority of union members are in public service unions and not in in private sector unions. So it goes back to the dictionary definition of labor meaning work. And there is one interesting glimmer I did find, I'll throw out there uh, for your consideration in the statement, 
um, by the Minister of Labor, I've got it in front of me here, Monty McNaughton, uh, recognizing, I think, um, our generation, the Zoomer generation, sort of reinventing retirement and can stubbornly continuing to participate in the workforce, whether not retiring at all or coming back into the workforce or working part-time. But in his statement, he did say, uh, quoting, we're bringing health care and dental benefits to millions of part-time and part-time and precarious workers, and also, he says, introducing foundational rights for those in the gig economy. I found those are kind of interesting. I have no comment on you know what those measures are or whether they're going to be any good, but the fact that they're now talking about part-time and gig economy, at least acknowledging that it exists, suggests that maybe they do recognize that the old rigidity of labor versus non-labor is being muddied a little bit, I think, led by the Zoomer generation. Peter, as reflecting back, 1894 was a completely different Labor Day than in 2022. Yeah. And in those days, labor generally worked Monday to Saturday. So Labor Day was a much needed and much enjoyed day off. You know, we can't even conceive of the hours that common laborers put in back then and, you know, the danger of their jobs and the wear and tear it had on the bodies long time. And, you know, just recognizing these people who sort of built the province and, you know, sort of, uh, you know, their whole lives went into this physical job and they died early. And, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's much different now, but, you know, that kind of, uh, we can remember the people who sort of built up the province and did so under, you know, low wages and very uh, poor working conditions. Peter Mugridge, senior editor at Zoomer magazine. David Kravitz, chief membership officer at CARP and vice president here at Zoomer Media. And Bill Van Gorder, chief operating and chief policy officer at CARP, a new vision of aging. This is Zoomer Radio's best of fight back. I'm Jane Brown. It sounds like great news for the nursing profession in Ontario and to help alleviate staffing shortages in hospitals. According to the Council of Ontario Universities, more than 13,000 people applied to a university nursing program this year. That's up about 8% compared with 2021 and 25% compared with 2018 and 2019. Joining me on Labor Day to talk about what this means for the future of healthcare, Charlene Stewart, president of SEIU Healthcare. You know, Jane, I really do want to recognize the healthcare workers who, you know, carried us through the, you know, worst pandemic of our lives. I recall back thinking, preparing for this interview about how those heroes showed up every day. It seems like a long time ago, but when the pots and pans were banging outside and they were being recognized by everyone as being true heroes, I believe that that moment inspired people to reconsider their future professions. You know, seeing them and their unconditional commitment to care for people in the worst of conditions, I think inspired a lot of people and a lot of young people coming out of school to look at healthcare as a profession. So I do want to recognize and honor them for that. You know, in the pandemic too, it, it you know, it's a calling. And those people who are looking at going into the nursing profession, I believe it is a calling. And I think this pandemic, you know, to look at the silver side of it, uh, definitely 
inspired some people to do what was in their was always in the calling for them is to come into the healthcare profession. So, I believe that's what um, definitely did contribute to some of it, and to some of them that I've had conversations with. You know, they realize that healthcare is in a crisis right now, and they're starting to think, well, could this be a profession for me? You know, could I help out? So, I believe that that's all you know contributing to it, and some of the incentives that are there definitely. So it's good news. It's just it's a moment for all of us to reflect on the past mistakes and to look forward to in this moment when we have people interested. How do we provide every single means to keep them, you know, in the school to keep them staying in the profession once they come into it? Because honestly, Jane, the recruitment has never been the major problem. I've had many people go into the profession. It's to keep them in there when they get into the right. into the work. Right, and that, you know what I want to harness that thought. And in addition to your talk about a calling, what would motivate someone to become a nurse after all the horror stories of long hours, no pay increases or very little pay increases, burnout, depression, anxiety, all of that? Wow, Jane, I mean, you just really did nail, you know, the life of a a healthcare professional right now. You know, in the recent CBC article that I read, the mom of that, you know, young woman that's thinking about making nursing her career, she was happy to see her daughter. And I know many of the nurses listening can definitely think about having these conversations with their children. And this is what they're telling me. is, of course, we want them to be in the healthcare profession. But we do also caution them about the working conditions. And I just hang on to hope that I hope that the government and the decision makers and the people that have the power to change things recognize that there are some simple solutions here. These nurses, I'm sure you're going to hear when they get on the on the calls, that it's the working conditions, it's the mental health support, it's the you know, wages. I mean, the premier could definitely deal with Bill 124 so that these nurses could negotiate strong mental health support after coming out of the, the work that they did during the pandemic. There are registered practical nurses that need some wage adjustments. All of these things, along with the good news about them going into colleges, is going to definitely be a positive factor for them coming into the profession and staying. These nurses should be talking about perceptorship as well. I mean, above all the strain of dealing with recovery from the pandemic and, you know, the crisis that we have in healthcare right now, they don't have the time for the additional uh, orientation and training of nurses coming into the profession. So, Along with the colleges having the great applications, we have to prepare those that are going to be training them and those that are coming into the hospitals and long-term care to have the best conditions that they stay there. And that needs to be also added to this positive news about the colleges and the application. Charlene Stewart, president of SEIU Healthcare. You're listening to the Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, goodbye to Boris, hello to Liz. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. 
Tuesday marked a change in leadership in Britain. Liz Truss became the new prime minister after she was chosen Monday as the next conservative leader by party members. And Boris Johnson said his goodbyes both to the Queen just two days before her passing and to those gathered outside 10 Downing Street in London. Liz Truss has always been a supporter of Boris Johnson. Some are even calling her Boris Johnson 2.0. While filling in for Libby on Tuesday, I asked our recovering politicians about their impressions of the new British Prime Minister. Sherry DeNovo is a former NDP, MPP and Order of Canada recipient. Lisa Raitt is a former Federal Conservative Deputy Leader. And David Peterson is a former Ontario Liberal Premier. Liz Truss, I watched Liz Truss with great interest because the Prime Minister of Britain is very important to the world and to us. And obviously her Canadian connection is of, of, of great interest. And she said she's learned a lot about the world going to school in Canada for a year. But the truth is, I found her singularly uninspiring. I watched her speeches and it was sort of the old rote. It was a. It was an old. Uh, it was cliche written, and there was no magic in it. Boris at least had some magic, and I think, I think she's going to have a tough time getting beaten up in the Commons. The Commons. It's a very tough place to debate. Very high quality parliamentary debate by and large, and some very effective opposition politicians. And I think she's going to have a pretty tough time, particularly walking into a plethora of problems, including, you know, energy prices going up 80% in October and massive inflation and wildfires and environmental problems. I mean, it couldn't be, and the Brexit issues and the hangover from all of that, it's a plateful for anybody And you're going to need a lot of range, a lot of help, and a lot of inspiration to do it. You wonder if she is about to become the fall guy for the Conservative Party. They're pretty tough on people, you know. Uh, You know, this is the fourth leader in, what, six years? Yeah. And when you can be removed by the Parliamentary Caucus, now would the Tories here have, at least would have much more insights into that than I would. Here, but it's a tough world, and who knows if she's up to it. Well, let's go over to Lisa Raitt. So your thoughts about Liz Truss? So what I find interesting about the new prime minister is that she started life in politics as a liberal Democrat, and then she turned over into being a conservative later on in her life. So she's a bit of a chameleon. I think she has also changed a little bit from when she was supporting Boris Johnson to when she was running for the leadership of the Conservative Party. She came out a lot more right than uh, Rishi Sunak, who is the former chancellor. And she definitely is talking about using intervention tactics in the market in order to deliver on people's energy bills. And I would just note this, that in her speech... She said something I thought was interesting. Usually politicians have these kind of broad motherhood statements. They're there, conservatives at least, are there to reduce your taxes, uh, grow the economy, and, you know, make life worth living. Sherry, what are your thoughts? I mean, as David mentioned, her speech was quite a throwback even to the Margaret Thatcher era. Well, I mean, first of all, uh, I think there's, <laughs> I, I agree with David that, you know, Boris was amusing and entertaining, but I think what's far more important here are policies and, and character. 
And of course, the question mark is there. But to Lisa's point, I mean, this is a woman who described her her parents as left of the Labour Party. So she has already come from an interesting background, not only being a Liberal Democrat, she certainly can change her mind. I mean, we remember that she supported staying in the European Union and then changed to Brexit, right? Right. So that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I don't think it necessarily shows a lack of principle. I think it shows flexibility and being able to move with the times. Concern areas for me, of course, she's a conservative. I would never vote for her. <laughs> but I mean, the other concern area for me are her ties to, to big oil. And when she says she's going to handle the energy bills, which of course are outrageous and unaffordable, what does that mean? Does that mean more public ownership, more control over them, or does it mean huge tax breaks for big oil? If it means the latter, that's problematic, I think, from any progressive's point of view who cares about the climate crisis, which they certainly have over there, mm-hmm. and we have here too. Sherry DeNovo, a former NDP MPP and Order of Canada recipient. Lisa Raitt, a former federal conservative deputy leader. And David Peterson, former Ontario Liberal Premier. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. It's described as a wake-up call for Canadians. A newly released report from Alzheimer's Society of Canada reveals that more than a million people are forecast to be living with dementia by 2030, a 65% increase from 2020. And this forecast is expected to rise to 1.7 million Canadians living with dementia by 2050. But it doesn't have to be this way. And there are personal changes you and governments can make to bring those numbers down. Joining me to discuss the findings and how to curb our own risk of dementia and Alzheimer's, Dr. Bill Reichman, President and CEO of Baycrest. Dr. Sandra Black, Professor of Medicine Neurology at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre and the University of Toronto. And Dr. Saskia Sivananthan, Chief Research Officer at Alzheimer's Society of Canada. So the report was actually two years in the making, and um, it uses a statistical um, model based on publicly available data from Statistics Canada. Um, And the way we we describe it, it's kind of like a simulation uh, video game that most people are familiar with. Each Canadian is a simulated person in the model, you know, and that means they have certain factors like their age, um, whether they have a caregiver or not, and any diseases that might be associated with them. And what the model does is then simulates them over time from 2020 through to 2050 and place forward scenarios to look at what would happen if those people age. And that's where you're seeing those rising numbers going from just over half a million Canadians currently living with dementia to almost a tripling by 2050 to 1.7 million Canadians. Dr. Sandra Black, certainly if you'd like to comment on the report. And also what I'd like to know from a science point of view, what happens in our brains that creates dementia and Alzheimer's? Well, as we get older, um, just like other parts of the body start to age in, in the brain, we have a tendency to accumulate certain proteins that might be there for some purpose, but as we age, they start to become kind of counterproductive. The two proteins that were identified by 
Alzheimer's in 1906, where uh, amyloid in plaques, they're called plaques and tangles, amyloid has been identified just in the last you know, 20 years right. or so in the plaques and tau is in the tangles. And so now we know what the proteins are and then there's some other um, less common disorders. And also we know that vascular um, health is very important. The, the health of your arteries and venules are really, arterioles and venules are very important to the development of this as time goes on and they age with aging. And that's why vascular health and lifestyle choices are so important in trying to preserve the brain's health as you age. But we do have a kind of a new era, I think, unfolding because now we are going to be able to measure some of these important proteins with blood tests. But we can talk about that in a moment. Sure. Just what happens is that you start to get network dysfunction in the various parts of the brain, often starting in the memory area in particular, and then it sort of moves through different areas of the brain affecting language and navigation skills and, you know, kind of decision-making. Uh, and you end up with um, a syndrome where the person is no longer capable of independent living. That's called dementia. But there's a prodrome of many years where it's called like mild cognitive impairment, where the person is still cognitively, I mean, having some memory problems, but they're still actually managing their day-to-day activities. And so there's opportunity to intervene before people become demented. Interesting. Dr. Bill Reichman, you're seeing this firsthand at Baycrest, obviously. Yes, that, that's for sure. And I think what Dr. Black uh, just said is just so critically important. And that is, uh, over the last several years, we've entered an era where it's become much clearer to us that um, at least 40% or so of dementia cases can be delayed or, or prevented through modifiable risk factors. And uh, that's a good news story, mm-hmm. which then compels us uh, to pay more attention to public health campaigns, helping uh, our communities to understand what at the individual and societal level we can do to mitigate or lessen uh, the risk of dementia and its impact on families and on our healthcare systems, as well as our, our overall economy. So um, I am optimistic that with the right kind of investments uh, in a thoughtful, disciplined public health campaign, uh, as we've done with smoking cessation and cancer, as we've done in the past with childhood vaccination, we can help people to understand that dementia does not have to be an inevitable consequence of growing old, and that in midlife and perhaps earlier, there are steps we can take as individuals and collectively uh, to reduce the risk to ourselves and to society. Dr. Bill Reichman, President and CEO of Baycrest. Dr. Sandra Black, Professor of Medicine Neurology at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center and the University of Toronto. And Dr. Saskia Sivananthan, Chief Research Officer at Alzheimer's Society of Canada. The report they were commenting on also outlines ways to reduce your risk or slow down the onset of dementia. These include being physically and socially active, getting six to eight hours of quality sleep a night, avoiding excessive alcohol use, seeking treatment for depression, avoiding head injuries, and using hearing aids. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. 
Fight Back with Libby's Nimer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics, and we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Margaret in Toronto phoned about our health care system and her concerns. I myself am very lucky. I have a good family doctor, you know, who works very well with me. I've had him for a number of years. But the other issue that I have is um, I'm a blind person. So when you go to a walk-in clinic or a hospital, and I find this with people who have disabilities, it adds to it. The, I find that the medical staff often don't know what to do when it comes to explaining things or helping you on the table or helping you, you know, if you have to go get tests or something. And I kind of hope somewhere down the line somebody would look into that part of the health system as well. Al from Hamilton called to say jaywalkers need to be penalized as part of Vision Zero. When I was a young fellow, we went down to the X. We took the bus into the gray coach to the terminal, got out, went up Bay Street, and went across, and cops, the cop and a cruiser jumped out and come over, and we each got a $10 ticket for jaywalking. That was 1962 or three. From that time till now, I spent 40 years in the city. And jaywalking has been such a problem. You worry about your brakes stopping for people on bicycles that aren't obeying lights, stop signs, nothing. And the people that are jaywalking, there's no penalty. So they don't, they're fearless. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is Kate in Toronto who phoned about the violations to cycling safety that she says she witnesses regularly. I just want to talk about the lack of enforcement. I'm a PSW who uses my bike to get around, and I have a huge catchment area. I took over 500 photographs last year of cars parked in the cycling lanes, and I continue to do that this year. Who cares but me and other cyclists? Why should we have to veer into traffic because somebody is too lazy to move a few meters ahead with their car on all the parking spots along the Danforth? That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeeb Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.